Good morning, good morning. I hope you are eager, excited to see what the Lord has to teach us today in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. But before we begin reading here, if I were to throw a term at you, gerrymandering, would you know what that meant? It's not a, it's not a, doesn't have any religious connotations. Would you know what the word gerrymandering means? And that's okay if you don't. Gerrymandering is a political idea of drawing the boundaries or drawing the electoral districts to achieve a, a desired outcome. We've all seen the political map, whether it's school districts or whatever, and these lines aren't straight. They'll zoop over here and loop this in and loop that out, right? We, we know it. Well, graphs and data show that you can only have 40% support. And if you draw the lines in your favor, you can win over 60% of the districts. There's a reason politicians do this. Common practice is natural as breathing in that world. They do it to include, to exclude certain people groups, to gain power. They do it to keep power. And in this passage today, we, we see bits and pieces of it. In the interpretation of this passage, if you read after many commentators, you'll see, again, bits and pieces of this. And to be honest, if we take a, an honest look at our lives and we look ourselves intentionally in the mirror, we'll see that many intentionally or either unintentionally gerrymander the gospel. And what I mean by that is sometimes, let me just give you kind of a little bit of an appetizer here. Sometimes something in Scripture is plainly taught to be sin. But you or someone you love or someone you're close to is engaged in that particular sin. So then what? Then a line is conveniently drawn around that person in that sin. Begins to treat that person's lifestyle as acceptable. Welcome them, bringing them into fellowship in the church, carving out either certain people groups. You know, we carve, carve out certain people groups at times and, and welcome in, we'll lock arms, we'll rub shoulders with those we know are enemies of God. You could gerrymander the scriptures by carving out, piecemealing these things, taking bits and pieces of verses here and there, nothing in context. You're piecemealing these things together to build a, a desired theology. One that fits you and your preferred theology, your preferred likings. 2 Timothy 2, Paul says this to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. That last phrase can be interpreted, cutting it straight. No need to be ashamed. Cutting straight the word of truth. Not piecemealing this thing together. Not piecemealing the scriptures to shape the outcome we desire or one that we're comfortable with. Remember that passage I just read in Timothy. We are to present ourselves to God as one approved. Not vice versa. He's not presenting himself to us. 
seeking approval. Okay? This is his creation. It's his plan. It's his purpose. It's his word. It's his gospel. And we have no right to move or, or, or reshape any of it. So the title of this is Gerrymandering the Gospel. So just to build a little bit of context before we move into this, because this is a pivotal passage. Again, it's the biggest narrative in the book of Acts. Let's grab some context. Acts 9, the very last verse, ends with this. And he, Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. All right, so Simon here is a tanner. Uh, his name, Simon, indicates one thing to us, that he was Jewish. The fact that Peter stayed with him indicates that he was a Christ follower. The fact that Simon is called a tanner is mentioned three times in this passage, and that should alert the reader that this man is unclean. Being a tanner was nasty business. It's where you would tan the hides of dead animals and make leather objects and trinkets and whatnot. The house of a tanner would have been located on the outskirts of the city, preferably downwind, because the stench would have been overwhelming. They're ceremonially unclean because of their handling of dead animals and or their carcasses. They, it's just a, a way of life. I want you to listen to how repulsive the occupation of a tanner was thought to be. You know, women in, in this in Old Testament times or the gospel times here, they didn't have the rights that men had. And it was typically that only men could initiate a divorce. But we read this, quote, Only a very limited number of situations can a woman request that the rabbinic court act on her behalf and compel her husband to divorce her. There's a few exceptions where a woman could come front and initiate the divorce. These situations have to do with his profession or physical condition. One, if he was a tanner. In these cases, she could claim that although she initially thought she could endure the unpleasant profession, she could no longer in fact do so. And the court may compel the man to divorce her. So a woman could come forward and, and, and initiate a case for divorce if, she, if her husband was a tanner. Maybe he kept that from her, or maybe she thought she could live with it and realized she couldn't. Or if he was a leper. Very few. So that, that just shows you how they view the, the stigma that was associated with being a tanner. And yet Peter stays with this unclean social societal outcast, it says in verse 43, for many days. That's chapter 9. Many days. And just for a frame of reference, look up in verse 23. This is dealing with Saul. 9.23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him being Saul. The many days in verse 23 is a period of about three years. So when Peter stays in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner, now I'm not insinuating Simon, Peter was with Simon the Tanner for three years, but more than likely it's going to be a little bit further than a week or so that you would typically picture it. Peter stayed with this Simon the Tanner for many days. And all the while, Peter's in Joppa, 
The Lord is laying the groundwork back in Caesarea. We went over this last week. I'll reread it just so we'll be there. I'll read, we begin chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Right, that's day one. Day one, we see God preparing the soil. We see that. An angel of the Lord comes to Cornelius while he's praying, instructs him to send men to Joppa and to retrieve Peter. All that was contained here. Peter is completely unaware of what is happening in Caesarea. And so as we read this next section, we'll see it is day two. God is going to equip the sower. Day one, God, God prepares the soil. Day two, God equips the sower. I'll read 9 through 16 to begin with. The next day, see we're day two. As they were on their journey and approaching the city, they being the, the two servants of Cornelius and the one soldier of Cornelius, Cornelius, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three, th this happened three times, and the thing was taken up to heaven. Up at once to heaven. So day one, we saw God preparing the soil in the case of Cornelius. Day two, we see here God's equipping the sower. He's going to be equipping Peter throughout this day. We'll, we'll just cover 9 through 23a because you'll notice in 23b it says the next day. So we're just going to cover it a day at a time, at least the first two lessons. So in verse 9 it says the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, this you see, Cornelius wasted no time. You know, when the angel departed, he, he gathered these two servants, he gathered this soldier, he relayed everything to them, and he sent them on their way. Whatever time they left, they made this 30-mile trip by noon the next day on foot. So we move on to the last part of, of verse 9. It says, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's about noon. 
Peter's going to remove himself from the distractions contained inside a house, away from the busyness of business. Likely, Simon the Tanner's business was in his house, or at least around his house. So there's a lot going on, and Peter just wants to, to, some, a distraction-free environment. So he goes up on top of the house, which was common in the Middle East. You know, they, they would have flat roofs with you know, maybe a, a railing or something like that around the, the top of it. No distraction. That's what Peter was, was shooting for. And it says in verse 10 here that he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Peter became distracted. Natural craving, hunger, right? Caused Peter to lose focus here. Kind of want you to take you back just a little bit in the Gospels, you know, as they're in the garden there, the Lord Jesus tells Peter and those with him to stay awake, to stay alert and pray. Peter fell asleep while attempting to pray. Jesus says there, look, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So Peter is here desiring unadulterated prayer. That's why he goes up on top of the roof to pray. But the natural tendencies, hunger, sleep in the gospels, all those overcome him. Look, and Peter's not alone, friends. Peter's not alone. Whether at home in prayer or, or maybe even during this service or the next, your mind will drift. You'll get tired. You may even become hungry like Peter. But look, that's no excuse to succumb to the flesh. That's what Jesus is teaching Peter. The flesh is weak. Fight it. Focus, brothers. Focus, sisters. Focus, Peter. Come on. And as the hunger is set in, as he's praying... It says here he fell into a trance. That's the Greek word ecstasy. Ecstasy is a state where consciousness is wholly or partly suspended and a person feels to be outside himself, like an out-of-body experience. This is where Peter is here in verse 10. This word is used in a couple other places. Paul will use this language on later on in the book of Acts. So as he's in this trance, he's going to see this vision, 11 through 16. We'll kind of just kind of chop through it here. Verse 11 says, He saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it, in the sheet, was all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. If you look at this same, as Peter rehearses this in chapter 11, he says in verse 6, Acts 11, verse 6, he words it this way. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. So I may have been hungry. I may have been in a trance. But I observed this closely. Peter knows what he's, what he's seeing here. He observed this closely, and what he sees is all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. The language all kinds points to this vision representing the entirety of the, of the animal kingdom. That's what it represents. And we know for a fact that some of the animals in this sheet, in this vision, are unclean. We know this from verse 14. 
Peter's response there. I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. So some animals in this sheet are unclean and common. So this vision is let down. All these animals are in this sheet. It's being let down on the earth. And we're told the command here, the imperative in verse 13, there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. So Peter responds to this command in verse 14. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. By no means, Lord. Listen to this thought that Peter, listen to this, this thought of Peter by Graham Scroggy. Quote, quote, Lord. Lord is a word curios, which means master. It means sovereign. It means one in complete control. So how ludicrous in one moment to call him Lord and in the same breath tell him no. That is a clear contradiction of terms. End quote. He's dead on. If he is master, if he is sovereign, if he is one in complete control, you don't tell him no. So the urge of Peter, and look, it, 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 it dwells in us too. The urge of Peter to negate what the Lord has instructed and commanded him to do is a telling indicator that we don't view him as master. We wrongly view ourselves as master of our lives. And God is nothing more than a, a conscience, so to speak, with morals. We're the master. We're in complete control. No, my friends, no. Peter here is off the mark when he says this. By no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. You see a sense of pride. You see a, prince of, uh, I mean, a sense of arrogance in this, right? One commentator put it this way. Legalists always seem to take pride in negatives, the things that they would never do. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this thing happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once. To heaven. The Lord is going to respond there to Peter's response with this very clear declaration what God has made clean, do not call common. And so as we move on in verses 17 through 23, we'll notice in this that Peter still has no idea what this vision means. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Simon was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. 
What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by an holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. You see very plainly as we begin this next little section, verse 17, that Peter, Peter has no idea what this vision means. It says he is inwardly perplexed. He, he's, he's you know, kind of looking at all, everything that happened, he just can't find a way to, to tie it all together. He can't make it make sense. And let me tip my hat to Peter here. You know, we constantly throw rocks at Peter. Let me tip my hat to him here. When we began, this vision began, Peter was hungry, right? He was hungry. He receives this vision. He don't understand this vision. He's inwardly perplexed. He's pondering the vision, it tells us here. But what Peter hasn't done is he hasn't thrown up his hands. He didn't just throw his hands up, forget about it, and go down and eat. All too often, I think we just give up too easy. We give up far too easy. We, we yield to the flesh. We yield to those cravings, sleep and hunger. We need to wrestle with it. We need to pray about it. We need to study, read, dig, don't quit. But Peter here doesn't quit. I mean, he may have been on the rooftop. He may have been hungry. may have been distracted. When he gets this vision, he ponders it. Even though he's perplexed, he ponders, he's pondering. He doesn't know what this means. And then you get this word, behold, in verse 17. Luke just says, behold, like look, the men who were sent by Cornelius, remember he sent the two servants and the one soldier to get Peter. They've made an inquiry for Simon's house. They're standing at the gate. Luke moves our attention quickly back to what had happened in the verses 1 through 8 there. Peter's perplexed by the vision, clueless to the fact that men have been sent by Cornelius to retrieve him. He has no idea what's going on downstairs. We see these two separate visions, and they're working toward one goal, and they're starting to come together here in this passage. Look, they're at the gate, verse 17. It says they're standing at the gate. So the question I asked myself here was, do all houses have gates? Wasn't able to get an answer, by the way. Or does this hint to the fact that maybe Simon the Tanner, his tanning business, was prosperous? Maybe. Either way, Peter's on the roof. These men are standing at the gate. And it says in verse 18, they call out and ask whether Simon, who is called Peter, was lodging there. They found Simon the Tanner's house. Is Simon, who is called Peter, lodging here? Why is a Roman soldier standing at the gate asking for Peter? You just have to put yourself in their shoes. What, what, are, they, what are they feeling? What's, what kind of, how tense are they inside? Has the persecution against the Christians that was in Jerusalem and it's made its way to Damascus, has that persecution now come here to Joppa? Peter's on the rooftop perplexed. The household of Simon the Tanner is probably in the house frightened. Peter doesn't know that they're there at the gate. They doesn't, he doesn't have any idea. They're down there asking about his whereabouts. Verse 19 says, And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men 
are looking for you. Peter on the roof, pondering the vision, and he's told that they're looking for him. And then we see this, again, this imperative or to rise and go. They are to rise and, and go. Rise and go down and accompany them, in verse 20, without hesitation, for I've sent them. Look, there's a time for reflection, there's a time for pondering, and there's a time for action. There's a time to rise and go. There's a time to, to go, as we're told here, and he is to go, as it says, without hesitation. So that begs the question, why would he hesitate? Why, why would Peter hesitate to go to these men who are at the gate asking for his whereabouts? Is he fearful of the Roman authority? Is he fearful of persecution? Possibly. Again, you know, it kind of swept through Jerusalem. It swept through Damascus. And maybe now that's what we see here. If you look down in the footnote of your ESV, you'll see a phrase there. It says that he is to rise and go, making no distinction. The legacy puts it this way. Rise and go without taking issue at all. As Peter rehearses this in chapter 11, verse 12, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Okay, so if we look at these alternative translations, we use the language of Peter in chapter 11, what we see is this. He's not hesitant to go with, this, with these men because they're Romans or Gentiles. I mean, he's not hesitant to go with them for fear of persecution. He's hesitant to go with them because they are Gentiles. That's why he's hesitant to go with them. They're uncircumcised, unclean Gentiles. That's his hesitation. And if you think I'm stretching, Brian, you're stretching. There's not that great of a gulf between Jew and Gentile. The barrier is not that great. Look in verse 28. This is when Peter makes his way to Cornelius. We'll get there next week. Peter makes his way to Cornelius, and he tells Cornelius this. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or even visit anyone of another nation. That's quite a barrier. That's quite a gulf. It's unlawful to associate with. It's unlawful to visit anyone of another nation. That's Peter's hesitation with going. To which God told him, do not hesitate, do not make any distinction. Peter calls it unlawful. One commentator by the name of Vincent put it this way. There is no direct command in the Mosaic law forbidding Jews to associate with those of other nations. There's no direct command for them to do this. A.T. Robertson put it this way. There's no Old Testament regulation forbidding such social contact with Gentiles, though the rabbis had added it and made it binding by their custom. You see, recommendations become tradition, and traditions become law. And Peter is told to set aside any of these prejudices he has. He was prejudiced. He is to set them aside, as verse 20 says, 
Because God says, I have sent them. The Lord has sent these men to Peter. But Peter doesn't know why they've sent them to him. We've been keyed in on that. Peter doesn't know. Verse 20, you're going to see Peter obey. Verse 21, Peter goes down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? He obeys, ending their search for him. They're at the gate wondering, is, is Simon, who is called Peter, is he here? Peter says, I'm the one you're looking for. And then he asks at the end of verse 21, what's the reason for your coming? Why are you here? So they tell him in verse 22. They begin by describing their commander, Cornelius. They says in verse 22, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. They gave to the answer as to why they came. Very plainly it says, Cornelius was directed by a holy angel to send for him. Why did you come for me? Because an angel came to Cornelius and told us to come get you. But why? They, why send for Peter? They tell us here to come back to his house and to hear what you have to say. Peter rehearsing this. Chapter 11, verse 14. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. The answer is crystal clear. Why are you here? Because an angel of God came to Cornelius told us to send men to get you, to bring you back to Cornelius, to hear what you have to say, to tell us words by which he must hear, a message which would save him and his household. It appears that Peter now has understood the meaning of this vision. And I love how he responds. I love how he responds. Verse 23a. So he invited them in to be his guest. This is just so Peter. This isn't even his house. You know, and he just pops down there. Who are you looking for? I'm the one you're looking for. What are you here? Oh, we're here to get you, to bring you back to, to Cornelius. Come on in. Come on in. Be my guest. We already got food on the stove for you. Come on in. Love it. Love it. But this has began to click. I think Peter finally understands what's going on. He doesn't have any more questions. You, you really doesn't see, see anything else that, that shows us that Peter didn't get. He didn't get it here. But do we understand it? That's the question. Peter understood it. But do we understand it? Is this about food or is this about Gentiles? John Polhill says this. If you're wondering if this is about food, or if you're wondering if this is about Gentiles, you're overlooking the fact that these two are inextricably related. In Leviticus 20, the law of clean and unclean are linked precisely to Israel's separation from the rest of the nations. The reason for these clean and unclean animals and things was for, for them to be a separate people. We're told this. Leviticus 20. Verse 25, I'll read it. You shall therefore separate the clean beast 
from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourself detestable by bird or by beast or by anything which crawls on the ground, which I have set apart for you to hold as unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the people that you should be mine. The Lord had called them out, set these clean and unclean things in front of them as a way to separate them from the people, from the nations that were around them. And see, Peter comes into this. We have to get this. He comes into this with all this baggage of the law. He he was raised this way as clean and unclean and things you touch and things you eat and things you don't. And he looks at this vision when he's told to rise, kill, and eat, and he says, no, no. Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. But see, that was just the way they were taught. That's the way the Pharisees would teach the law. It's really just this this works-based flair. You know, just a works-based salvation. They would just do the right thing, eat the right thing. They would be clean. That's the way the Pharisees taught the law. So much so in the Gospel of Mark, if you want to turn there, chapter 7, you don't have to. Mark 7, in the very beginning of this chapter here, the Pharisees are really, they're attacking Jesus. They're confronting Him because some of His disciples are eating without washing their hands. So now they're defiled. So Mark tells us how the Pharisees would act in verse 4. He says when they would come in from the marketplace, that means like just the, you know, when they would come in from uh, the street, so to speak, or from the supermarket there, they would not eat unless they wash, unless they bathe themselves. There were many other traditions they observed. They'd wash the cups, the pots, the copper vessels, the dining couches, their hands. So when they would come in from the supermarket, they would take a, a bath. Then they would wash cups, pots, vessels, dining couches, hands, All of this cleanses them. To which Jesus is emphatically saying, No, no, no. He says in verse 18, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach. So how can the food you eat defile you? It can't. How can the food you eat cleanse your heart? It can't. That's why Mark, verse 19, says, Thus he declared all foods clean. And what God has made clean, back in Acts 10, do not call common or unclean. So you see, Peter understood the vision of the food. He understood that it had a wider implication than the dietary laws of Judaism. That's why in verse 28, Acts 10, 28, he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So he knew it had to do with more than food. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So what makes a person clean? Food? The washing of hands? These, these ceremonial rituals? No. Verse 15 tells us the Lord cleanses them. 
which Peter kind of just echoes this on over in Acts 15. He says there that God made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Faith in Christ and Christ alone. That's what cleanses someone, and that's an act of God. Okay, so Peter knew that he was saved by the blood of Jesus. Peter knew that. He knew he was saved by entering into the new covenant there of Jesus' blood, where, where God gives us a new heart, and He places His Spirit inside us. Peter knew that no one would be saved by Old Testament law-keeping. Peter knew that. But all that baggage is not immediately left behind. It's just not. And so remember the title, Gerrymandering the Gospel? Look at how some gerrymander the Gospel. Go to 15, Acts 15. I hope you see where I'm coming from. Acts 15, verse 1. Some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, that's Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Can't be saved unless you're circumcised. That's what they were teaching. Look down in verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Wow. You know, Paul says in Galatians, you know, pushing back against this, this law, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Have you ever read the law? And you're desiring to be under it? You, you have no idea the burden and the yoke you're placing on people and yourselves. Look in verse 10 of chapter 15. Peter responds to this. Why are you putting God to the test? Why are you placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You see, they were mixing law and grace. And Peter's trying to straighten all this out in chapter 15. But they were only mixing the laws that they were able to keep. Because neither they nor their fathers could keep the law, according to Peter. So it's really plain to see here how they have gerrymandered the gospel. You want to be saved? Here's what you've got to do. You've got to be circumcised and you've got to keep all the whole law of Moses. It's plain to see here, but is it obvious in our lives when we present the gospel, right? Do we communicate the gospel with clarity? Do we communicate the gospel with an emphasis on Christ alone? And I guess just to continue down this gerrymandering path, did Peter draw a line on what was clean and unclean? Absolutely he did. What was the basis of doing this? The law. The law which stated that tanners would be unclean. So why was Simon the tanner not unclean? Because he was a Jew. As John Stott put it, the tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. 
It was filled with racial pride and hatred. It despised Gentiles as dogs, developed traditions which kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would even enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home. End quote. Which is exactly what Peter says in verse 28. You know it's unlawful for us to associate. You know it's unlawful to visit anyone of another nation. But it's quite lawful to gerrymander around Simon the Tanner. Notice how he moved the line to include his Jewish friend Simon. He excluded uncircumcised Gentiles, even God-fearers. Even God-fearing Gentiles. Look, I'm not, I feel like I'm throwing stones at Peter and I don't mean to. But with an honest look in the mirror, we may be guilty of the same. Lord, help us not gerrymander the lines. Help us cut it straight. Now, Peter just, just conveniently grouped in a certain, certain people and, and cut out other people to fit what he thought was right. But it wasn't cutting it straight. It wasn't keeping with the Word. God straightens them out. It's also very common to gerrymander the Scriptures. Well, we take bits and pieces of this, and this is common. Bits and pieces, and we kind of weave these things together into a, a tapestry of something that's palatable to us. Something that we're, we're, we're comfortable with. Something that, that we fit, that maybe others don't, but they got to work on it. Look, that's unacceptable. We need to cut it straight. We need to rightly divide the Word of God all times. Don't gerrymander the Scriptures. Don't gerrymander the Gospel. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing. Peter will drive this home in Acts 15. Amen? Amen. Would please stand.